a cuppa and a good chinwag? The story has real-life stories to inspire and make you smile. Weekdays on Vision and on demand in the app. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. As we do on a Thursday, we like to catch up with Charles Newington, National Director of Family Voice Australia. He's interested in so many of those issues that somehow or other you've got to dig a little bit deeper into and always has some fabulous insights. So I want to welcome a special welcome back, Charles Newington. Welcome. Thank you. Good morning, Neil. Charles, not a lot of publicity around some developments in the Middle East and some of that because we've been a little bit fatigued over those things over the past five or six years. But let's talk Syria today because uh, there's new information coming to light, uh, another humanitarian crisis or at least an ongoing humanitarian crisis in the nation of Syria. Uh, It's caught your attention. Uh, yes, thank you, Neil. Uh, uh, we talked about it last week, and it warrants follow-up because uh, the situation is critical. Uh, a, um, a journalist called Walter Russell uh, Mead from the Wall Street Journal was published uh, in the in the Australian today, and he was describing the the terrible crisis that is developing in Syria at the moment. And um, his words um, deserve quote. He, he, he writes, "The long and bitter Syrian civil war has shifted into an ugly new stage." The brutal repression of the remaining rebel-controlled areas in Syria's northwest provinces of Idlib and Aleppo. About four million people huddle in desperate conditions as Syrian government forces and their Russian allies prepare the final bloody push. Turkey, which has absorbed almost four million Syrian refugees, has closed its borders against the final surge. Heart-rending pictures of families and small children seeking shelter in freezing temperatures or crowded against the Turkish border fortifications fill the world's newspapers. And it, I, note, I note that they don't fill ours. Yes, and I wonder whether you've got any thoughts there. I mentioned this idea of some level of fatigue in talking about things that happen in the Middle East. Uh, what are your thoughts about the fact that our newspapers aren't really giving it any much coverage at all? Yes, I think that editors would have made the decision that th- th- this is not a matter of, of a, what we might call general public interest. You know, we're concerned about coronavirus. We're concerned about whether we're going to have a deficit or a, or a, or a surplus budget type thing. And, um, and, and that's what our, our papers are focusing on. And these things are important. There's no doubt about it. But uh, I think it's important that people are conscious that while we, while we are concerned about these local issues, something of desperate proportion is happening in the world. Once again, Mead writes, for more, with more than 400,000 dead, 5.6 million international refugees and 6.2 million people displaced within its borders, Syria has exhausted the world's compassion and I, I think that people have this view that Syria is just is just destructing itself. You know, the, whatever is going on there that seems so hard for people to understand, it, it, it's just beyond comprehension, and we're just going to have to leave them to sort it. But leaving them to sort it is is a very br- brutal option. And this really leads to this. A new destructive development phase that's going on there and the idea that 
the Americans have withdrawn some of their input into uh, what was that conflict in the Middle East. And, of course, uh, you had everybody taking sides. And Russia is still in the mix uh, supporting the Syrians uh, and the Iranians. Uh, But the Americans uh, pulling out a little of their impact there in the Middle East. Uh, What are your thoughts about the way things are developing? And perhaps we don't have as much focus there because maybe the Americans are not so strong there anymore. Uh, That's a good point. Uh, The phrase Pax Americana was coined not so long ago, which described the fact that right up until recently, perhaps the Trump era, uh, although with declining effect, America had been the world's policeman and it had had a presence in in the Middle East and it, it kept these sort of conflicts um, hosed down to some degree. Uh, and, uh, and I say that advisedly because they were always still popping up. But nevertheless, in their, in their relative absence now, uh, Russia has moved into the vacuum. Iran has a new confidence and boldness. Turkey has a new confidence and boldness. And the challenge that we may not understand in, in, in our situation is that um, the Turks represent the, the orthodox side of Islam, uh, Sunni Muslims, and and Iran represents the sectarian side, the Shiites, and and um, and and Syria is actually a kind of a vassal state. Um, the political arm of Syria is a kind of a vassal state of the of, of Shiism, and whereas the majority of the population are in fact Sunni. And the and the challenge here is that that Sunni Islam is not um, intervening in any way to protect Sunni Muslims. This is this is this sort of a collapse of political will here, and they're just letting this uh, letting this situation resolve to its final tragic conclusion amazing that the war within the war uh, and you know it depends on where you come from in that as to which war you're talking about because this conflict between sunni muslims and shia muslims has been going on since something like the yeah. 7th century and yeah. it's not an easily resolvable and you might say completely unresolvable uh, conflict there but we're seeing some of those issues being played out in Syria because the Syrian regime uh, as uh, the uh, as the uh, Shiite uh, arm of Islam there uh, looking to displace those Sunni uh, Islamists in the nation uh, what are your thoughts yeah. for the way that uh, that's that's evolving Charles Yes, well, I think that it is escalating, uh, uh, and so uh, this is an example of its escalation. And um, and Russia has chosen um, um, uh, to uh, to stare down, to growl at Turkey, uh, and it's done that because Syria is giving it some incentive. So it's been drawn into uh, that part of the Middle East. Some of the incentives are things that they've now got Mediterranean ports on uh, on the Syrian coast. And that gives them their their their, their, their fleet is doesn't have to come through the, the Dardanelles, you know, through the, the isthmus there in, in in Istanbul from the Black Sea. They they've got access to the world from the Mediterranean, and uh, this is a very strategic issue. And then of course there's access to oil. But I'd remind people that um, that these northwestern provinces include Aleppo, which is the ancient city of uh, or associated with the ancient city of Antioch, which was one of the first Christian. Um, um, uh, 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 cities that responded to the Christian message. The scripture says that Christians were first called Christians in in Syrian Antioch. And uh, so th- this is the battleground. And um, uh, that's a, a somewhat um, selfish, but a, 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 it's part of our faith that, that our brothers and sisters are, are all implicated in this terrible, in this terrible big sweep. 
little bit the old illustration of being the meat in the sandwich. Uh, two slices mm. of bread either side and uh, the meat in the middle. And when you talk about Christians in the Middle East and oftentimes when we talk about uh, issues around the persecution of the Christian church, uh, it comes from a number of different avenues and uh, different sides of Islam, uh, part of the whole issue uh, in the Middle Eastern area. Hey, Charles, let's move on to another issue. There's, of course, this big debate that's been going on in the state of Queensland around transgenderism, and uh, the Queensland government had a draft law to criminalise the so-called conversion therapy. Uh, that's, of course, suffered a bit of a setback for them because uh, because uh, that's been defeated, as I understand it. What are your thoughts around the developments in Queensland? Well, the um, the... There's been feedback from uh, medical bodies, um, both, uh, and and also from the LGBT community and and from the Christian community, the wider community, uh, expressing uh, real concerns about the way in which this is progressing. Um, they're, they're saying that the bill doesn't doesn't actually make clear what the government has in mind. What therapies would a clinician or a therapist or a pastor or a counsellor go to jail for for up to eighteen months? for example, and it's important for Queenslanders to hear the fact that in November the Queensland Minister of Health said that the government was proud to lead the fight against gay conversion therapy and because there's overwhelming evidence that conversion therapy is harmful and correlates to high suicide rates. Um, this, um, this information, you know, was given to them by one side of the conversation and now other bodies are standing up and saying, well, there's more, you have to consider more other issues here. This is, this is not the whole story. And so, um, you know, it's fascinating that the bill, it just says here, the bill would criminalise unethical practice to undo an adult's fixed sexual orientation. Uh, when it talks about that, it's talking about, not talking about their biological sex, but their psychological choice of gender or orientation. Okay. Uh, but also, so, so, you know, that's what the, you know, you get words are such subtle things, aren't they? The way they carry uh, meanings that the average person, when you read them, you don't realize that's what they're saying. And of course, we've been really interested in this subject because this idea of conversion therapy ultimately trickles down to what might even happen in the prayer line at your local church or when your pastor is in the counseling uh, situation in his office and someone comes and asks for help and what sort of help can they give? And uh, this has been a really a significant issue. Of course, uh, the provisions in these bills tend uh, to go towards professionals who are in the medical field. But the big issue at the heart of all this uh, is the idea that clinicians would be forced to affirm the choice that someone has made rather than put them through a, a process of really sorting things out there, Charles. There is a lot of confusion that happens. Yes, that's exactly what the the medical profession is is saying. It's saying, you know, don't don't summarise this as a as a as a one solution, a one 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 size fits all type situation where just affirm anybody's. It talks about, for instance, the bill talks about the fact that you know under 18s their gender is inherently changeable. In other words, they're saying that gender is not fixed. Uh, but that uh, children will bounce backwards and forwards uh, into whether they think they're a boy or a girl or something else, and, and that's the norm. In fact, it's not the norm, but that's what the ideology says. And uh, and so doctors are saying, oh, there's a degree of that on the fringe, but it's not the norm, and, and let's, uh, let's take a, a different approach.
The thing that I'd like to sort of focus on here really is the role of the Christian family. And, you know, I love the old, um, the old English word, uh, husband. Uh, husband, uh, you can hear it, house band. He who holds the household together. That's powerful, that thought. And yeah. I know that you like to think about uh, how people respond within the broader community. And it's nice to talk about the Christian community, and uh, that is obviously one of our main focuses when we have these conversations. But you like to take things a little broader too and and uh, impressions about how the broader community thinks about these sorts of things, Charles. Uh, the idea of a pub test or the idea of a Bible test, you know, how we yeah. actually sort out what's right and wrong uh, just from the point of view of the average uh, punter. Uh, what are your yeah. thoughts for a, bu- a pub test or a Bible test? Yeah, well, a pub test, I think if, if you if you went into a pub, you know, and particularly after a few beers, and you said, let's, let's talk about transgenderism, shall we? You know, um, <laughs> and uh, just outlined what the bill that's going before the Queensland government by uh, uh, Parliament would uh, outline. You know, the average bloke would say, you're kidding, aren't you? Yeah. Uh, you know, but the Bible test is perhaps a little bit more insightful, certainly more insightful, because I noticed that um, that one of the first things God did when he created human beings was to distinguish their biological sex. He, it says right there in the first words related to the creation of humanity, male and female created he them. And that gender is absolutely fundamental. And the biological sex, you know, if, if we think about biological sex as, as what we are uh, in terms of, you know, everything that's in our cells has got a, has got a gender marker on it, not just our, not just our, our, our genitals. Uh, but if we think beyond that into then how that, that chemistry, that very biological reality plays into our psychological sense of ourselves, if you like, our gender. You know, that is how God created us. And while there, there are examples of, of gender dysphoria among little children who, who do bounce backwards and forwards for psychosocial reasons, there's no doubt about it. But what clinicians have been concerned about is the fact that teens who'd never had those thoughts and then when they were little children are coming forward and asking for some kind of transition therapy. And they're sort of saying, hey, wait a minute, this needs to be understood more clearly because it's, from a biblical point of view, um, sexuality and gender are in our very DNA. Interesting. What what concerns me about governments is this rush to legislate and and improper, uh, improper consultation, and it's a pattern, and it needs to be addressed and even the way that these things are reported and discussed and there's commentators, everyone's got their opinion, you've got uh, progressives versus conservatives on the issue. Uh, there was a time not that long ago, Charles, when people were not even having these thoughts. Uh, but because there has been a national debate, because we've been through the whole uh, marriage debate and because we're going through all sorts of things where these discussions are necessary now, and not just on our program, but uh, throughout the nation and people take taking sides, but people never used to even have these thoughts. But now that there's a discussion about it, people are coming forward and saying, well, maybe I want to change my gender. It does create its own problem. What are your thoughts? Well, I think that's the case. They call it a social contagion. It's like a, a coronavirus of, of, the, of the mind, that it's catchy. And it gets caught because of um, the fact that it's the cool thing for a particular set among the very impressionable teenage uh, population. 
I think that um, what's really important for us is that um, it, it, this is causing all people, including Christians, to, to look hard at what um, what they really believe about uh, sex and gender. And and the Christian community certainly needed that shake-up. It needed... It, it's an example of how what's going on in society feeds back into what we might call the theological reflection or the biblical reflection of the Christian community. And we shouldn't be deaf to the voices in our society because they're usually responding to some kind of genuine social uh, and, and psychological heart cry. And in this particular case, it's important for us to, to realize that God, firstly, God didn't make a mistake when he created us male or female. On a personal level, in everybody's case, it was not a mistake. And despite the huge and complex differences that, uh, between the genders, um, these make life interesting and they, they bring us to a place where we have to really learn how to submit to each other, learn how to relate to each other across the gender lines. And the good news of Jesus includes the affirmation of our biological identity, and it gives an assurance to women that they are equal but different from men. And, of course, as Christians, we'll often talk about biblical truth, and here's a wonderful example where the biblical truth affirms the science, the science affirms the biblical truth, and uh, the reason for us here, Charles, is to remain engaged, not to hold back, but actually to make sure that our point, when it is known, uh, actually is, uh, you know, is reflecting those two dimensions, the biblical and the science. Exactly. Uh, well, well put, Neil. Well put. We we we're not just making a theological statement here. We're we're making the connection between the the, the, the Bible truth and uh, and the and the scientific uh, truth. And I think that that's not an easy thing. You know, I just love the way that the that God did not give us a kind of a manual. He didn't give us a a sort of a, a computer manual for for life. You know, that's got all that high, complicated and and. Uh, and um, uh, and kind of precise uh, kind of language that's so boring we all go to sleep over it except for the, the nerds. You know, he gave us this book that's got this this amazing narrative form and this great legislative dynamic and and great poetic issues and uh, and this, the language of the heart and and then uh, you know and then the great stories of the consummation of history you know all this stuff that is mixed in there and he says now look you've got to have you take you must take responsibility for your faith and you must look hard at this great message of God to the world because it's it's not it, God is not dumbing down uh, the the challenge of faith he's he's presenting it to us and we have to think it through and pray it through and work it through. And, and in this case, I, I just say there's some fundamentals. And one is the family, and that so many of these social issues that are being addressed by the state or by lobby groups or whatever, they are reflections of trouble in the family, how the family's not functioning. And in this particular case, is what, what this case says to us, is it says particularly to fathers, it's saying your job is not just to make sure that your wife is happy because she's got a new dishwasher. Your job is to give yourself to an understanding of what it is to hold your house together and to do it in a way that's gracious, in a way that gives every member of that household an opportunity to flourish and reach their full potential as a human being. Uh, you know, so leadership is not, um, is not lording it over. Leadership is creating an environment uh, for others to flourish. We can be proud that our Creator, God, the God of the Bible, 
is the one who has given to us truth. And you can be proud of the fact that he made male and female. And uh, just wonderful getting your insights once again, Charles Newington. Let me point people to the Family Voice website. You've got lots of great articles there, keeping your followers up to date with some of the developments that are happening on these big issues around the nation. It's familyvoice.org.au. Charles Newington is the National Director of Family Voice Australia. It's familyvoice.org.au. Charles, looking forward to our next catch-up again next week. Thanks for being with us again today on 2020. Thank you, Neil. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.